Hi, I'm Chelsea Neumeyer and I'm a time management and productivity coach. My goal is to help you go from overwhelmed to under control without a strict schedule or a bunch of productivity hacks. Each week, we'll talk about productivity mindset, actionable advice, my favorite resources, and you'll hear from guests just like you who are maximizing their limited resources. If you're anything like me, you're listening to this on the go, so check out the show notes and follow me on Instagram to learn more. Okay, let's start the episode. Hi, everyone. I just want to jump on here real quick before the episode to tell you about my group coaching program, also called From Overwhelmed to Under Control. This 12-week program is designed to help service-based solopreneurs maximize their time by creating systems and processes that work for their life and their business. Together, we'll learn to ditch the productivity guilt, design our schedules with our natural strengths and lifestyles in mind, get organized with our space, task management, and inboxes, and learn the tools you need to get more done in less time. Visit ChelseaNewmeyer.com or send me a DM to learn more. Doors open on September 15th and the program starts September 19th. I hope to see you there. Hi everyone, today I am so excited to be welcoming Ami Devereaux, who is the founder of Beyond Better Strategy and Coaching. Beyond Better works with founders and leaders of high growth organizations to develop and execute extraordinary strategy and to execute those strategies by developing people. She is a former U.S. CEO of Ringo Mobile Payment and the author of the book, Powered by Principle, Using Core Values to Build World-Class Organizations. So thank you so much for being here today, Ami. I'm delighted to be here, Chelsea. So I know I just read your bio, but I would love to hear in your own words a little bit more about who you are and what you do. You mean business, right? You don't yes. want to hear about my garden? Well, either way, but <laughs> I'd love to hear more about your business. Sure. So, well, I mostly work with tech companies, with tech startups, the sort of proverbial companies that are somewhere between, you know, the three guys in the garage and Apple. And sort of, you know, closer to the beginning of that trajectory than the end. So they're usually companies that have raised at least one round of institutional funding, usually from venture capital, sometimes from other other places. But it's this weird kind of a of a business situation because if you think about more traditional conventional organizations, the people in the organization and the organization itself tend to grow at a pretty predictable pace. So you would expect, you know, a small business that starts in year one, maybe it's a million dollar company in year four or five. That's the kind of thing you expect in a company that isn't venture funded. But when you're talking about a company that's got venture funding, they've got a bunch of money and they've got a bunch of investors with very high expectations. And so they grow super fast or they have to grow super fast. The problem in growing super fast is that human beings do not naturally grow at the same pace that you can grow revenue in a company that's not dependent on, say, manufacturing. So, you know, when you're talking about a digital company, which is what most of these are, digital growth can be exponential or geometric, and that's not how human beings develop. So people who come in straight out of an MBA and they're interns in year one, three years later, may be a vice president running a division or a product manager overseeing a product that has $40 million a year in revenue, and they're 27 years old, and they've never had any other job. So that's a serious kind of personal and professional growth trajectory. And there aren't a lot of role models in the organization because almost everybody will be kind of in the same boat. So I work in that 
in that world. And then the other, so that's the people piece, but the, and you have to excuse if I sound like I'm not speaking clearly, as you can see, but your audience can't, half my face is paralyzed with Bell's palsy. And that means half my tongue is paralyzed. <laughs> so it's got some things, some weird things going on with it right now. And, and listeners, you can all look that up and find out what it is. It's not a stroke and it will get better, they tell me. Anyway, that's the people piece. And then there's the strategy piece, which, and I think that the strategy piece is probably about the same for small businesses, people like you and me, and, mm -hmm. you know, just your basic SMD, as it is for startups. And this is distinct from regular corporations, which is that we don't have strategies. Our strategy is something like sell, right? That's <laughs> yep. the strategy, get revenue. And in the absence of a strategy, you know, you know, you don't really know what's the most important thing you should be doing. And perhaps more importantly, you don't really know what are the things I shouldn't be doing. Like which opportunities do I not pursue? And if I don't pursue them, am I, you know, am I taking a huge risk of ending up broke? Is my business going to go under? Am mm -hmm. I leaving money on the table? Startups have the same problem, which is that they are have they have a massive universe of opportunity. And mostly they don't have real strategy. They actually have a strategy that's like, this is what we sell. And we pretty much will sell it to anybody who wants it. And we'll make a deal with anybody who will make a deal with us because our investors want revenue. And so developing real critical scientific strategy that you can test, iterate upon, that you can tell when it turns out to be wrong so you can change what you're doing. That's the strategy piece of my work. And that's what I work on. Oh, that's wonderful. And and what inspired you to get into this field and work with these types of clients? I've been a consultant for about 30 years, so it's not new. What, what pulled me into this particular niche is that I got recruited in 2009 in the midst of the Great Recession when my mm -hmm. business fell apart and everything went to hell to run a startup. And so I ran a technology startup. We got that acquired. And then I ran a second one. I didn't found them, but I was the hired CEO. And I learned very rapidly how different that universe was from where my sort of own experience had been, which was consulting to legacy companies. And I happened to love the world of startups. Like I love the innovation. I love the youngness of it and the, not the young chronologically, but like every organization is young in the sense that it's a new idea, something that hasn't been done before. There's passion and excitement and and speed and urgency. And I like that. I like working like, and I liked that when I ran those companies, I liked it when I consulted to ones in the same niche. And I like working with those companies now. Oh, that's great. I mean, I think the startup world, like that sounds so exciting because as you mentioned, everything is so fresh. So you can build whatever you need to build in a way that's going to make sense for the organization. So that seems really, really exciting. If only that were the way it went. Mostly you build what you can build, not what you should build. Mm -hmm. Just like in our organizations, right? Like, you know, maybe sure. you think that in if you were really going to fulfill on the vision for your podcast or your business, you might think ideally you'd have a staff of five and a, a personal assistant and you'd be, you know, putting out a podcast every day and you have some idea of what it looks like to really generate momentum, but you're not doing that. You're doing what you have to right now mm -hmm. within the constraints you have. And, and in startups, the constraints are like most of us, money and time, but also what the client wants right now. So if they have a client that needs them to 
develop a certain kind of functionality in the technology, then that drives the development of the product a lot of the time instead of a strategy or instead of a vision. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But I get what you're saying. Ideally, you build whatever is the right thing. I think I just like the idea of, of starting from scratch sometimes. I think we'd all like that, right? Yeah. It be nice to hit reset every few years. Exactly. So you mentioned when you're working with individuals that they're often younger and have grown in their role really quickly. So what are some of the initial challenges that they may be facing? Or what are some of the things that you work on with those young new leaders? Funnily, the initial things have less to do with them being young than them having the same problems that older people have, which is that, and these are all in your world. These are problems of how do I get my get done what I need to get done? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's always the problem. There's much more to do than there are hours in the day in which to do it. Um, and there's not a system that most people have, or if they do have it, they have an organization whose systems compete with it. So a lot of organizations, for example, have everybody's calendar is visible to everybody else's and people can put appointments on each other's mm -hmm. calendars. It's mm -hmm. really common and it's incredibly, it sort of cannibalizes people's time. Now we don't see that in tiny little businesses like like mine or yours. I mean, I only have me and you know, if you hear noise in the background, that's my dog who's gonna probably come visit in time to disrupt <laughs> us. But the thing that I think is really hard for most people who are ambitious is that there are many more things that you have to or want to do than you can do in the time available. And I'm, I'm sure some of what I have to say about this will be duplicative of what you've probably said and what you've other guests have said. But the, the thing that I find is the most useful recommendation I can make for all of my clients is marry your calendar, mm -hmm. surrender, give up thinking you should decide what to do at any given moment in the moment. Instead, you decide what future you should do by defending the time in your calendar and assigning it to specific tasks. And those tasks should be the ones that you have decided at some prior moment are the most important thing for you to work on. And the reason I emphasize making the decision in advance is because at any given moment, if I look to my impulse about what I think is the most important thing for me to do, it will not be the most important thing for me to do. It will be the thing that is causing me the most anxiety in this moment, or mm -hmm. the thing that I think that by doing it, I could relieve some anxiety in this moment, or that I could use to avoid doing the thing that I should do. All of which are emotional cudgels using your time in the best way possible. So the way that you combat that is that you assign your time to the things that strategically are most important. And then because you have married your calendar and surrendered to it, you do what it says. You don't override it. You don't outvote it. You don't ignore it. Yeah. And that that is usually the thing I work on with my clients first. Yeah. I mean, I love that. And that's exactly what I recommend a lot most of the time as well is that blocking your time, scheduling your tasks based on that time that you've allotted. But I think a lot of people push back, right? So, <laughs> so when someone says, but what if, right? All these what ifs come up when I start coaching someone on this kind of scheduling and really, like you said, marrying your calendar, surrendering to it. But what if something comes up? 
and what things do come up. That's what mm -hmm. copy and paste and drag is for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, there's a lot of subordinate rules after the merrier calendar and mm -hmm. schedule everything you mean to do. Like one of the subordinate rules I have is extend your time horizon. So I always tell people this: our innate, our sort of, our human bias with respect to time is that we don't look out more than two weeks. Like if you and I meet on the street and I go, oh my God, Chelsea, it's so amazing to run into you. I was thinking about you. Let's have a drink together. And we both get out our calendars and I look at this week and you look at this week. And then we look at next week and we look at next week and we're like, God, I don't have anything. I'll text you. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And what we should do is we should go, you know what? This month's crazy. Let's book something in October. But we don't do that. We allow, it's almost like at the end of two weeks, like for flat earthers, ships they thought fell off the edge of the ocean. We're like that with time. Like at the end of two weeks, it's like everything falls off a cliff and we can't book anything past that. It's insane. So I tell people, as you're looking at your massive list of things to do, there are things that you really do have to do, but you really don't have to do now. Mm -hmm. So I tell people to put them in a list. There's doing now. There's doing, but not now. And there's maybe never doing, but not ready to get rid of, right? And those first two lists should go on the calendar. Doing, but not now, should maybe get things booked out three months, four months, five months. And there are things strategically in your business that are in that category. Like before we started the recording, we were talking about our respective, my ex-boyfriend and your current husband and their weird schedules. Yeah. And so when I had decided to write my book, I actually scheduled it to write. I was doing all the research and all the prep and all the outlining, but I scheduled to write it for when my then boyfriend was going to go to sea as a merchant marine. And I put it in my calendar. So it was several months away. I could do all the prep, mm -hmm. but I knew that the time in my calendar to actually sit down and write four hours a day for 60 days was scheduled, but it was yeah. several months out. And that was the only way that was ever going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those are the things you're doing for sure, but not now. The things that you're doing now, you do schedule for tomorrow, next week, you know, tomorrow afternoon, today. Um, and then that third category, you can put out two years, you know, because our, our digital calendars go out into perpetuity. Yeah. Are you meaning to, you know, sail around the antiquities? Great. Put that in the calendar for 2045. It'll show up eventually, even as you change phones, it'll keep coming up. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. I've never thought about it like that. And I think part of that is because to, for someone who is ambitious and eager and wants to do all the things two weeks away feels like forever mm -hmm. and it feels like a million years away. And so that's such a great mindset shift to make to say, it's, it's not that it's not getting done. It just, it just needs to get pushed out a little bit. It just needs to go past this two week random line you've drawn that, that you just mentioned. That's great. Well, and the truth is nothing significant is going to get done within the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, no matter how ambitious you are, the more ambitious your plans, the more complicated and multi-step and multi-iteration they are. So they're going to take some important things you're going to do may take six months to get done or a year to get done. You know, I'm trying to build a course. Well, I can't do it with my face paralyzed, but I'm building the, the plans for it, mm -hmm. even though I can't record it now or launch it now, because the fact that it needs to get done doesn't mean that it needs to get sold tomorrow. 
But if it's sold in 2023, that's okay, you know? And if you have ambitious plans, then you need to acknowledge the amount of time it takes to do the real work of production, mm -hmm. of thinking, production, planning, creating, iterating, editing, you know, finding out that sucked and doing it again or all those yeah. pieces. Yeah, I love that you just mentioned too. It's it's breaking things down into their smallest possible step. So what goes on your calendar, even if it is two weeks away, is not design course. Right. It's record module one, right? It's right. it's breaking it's breaking those those big projects down into their smallest possible piece. And that's what you look at every day to stay focused, to stay on track, and to know that the big project will be completed but throughout the the longer duration that it may need to be. Yeah, and you can think about it the same way as, you know, like I started learning the violin about it just over a year ago at the right age of 50 something. And, uh, you know, learning the violin is not something you do, right? It's a mm -hmm. practice you have. And all I can do is, you know, set goals. Like, I hope I can play this piece or I hope I can play that piece, but it's, it doesn't get done. And something like, you know, having a successful podcast, the only, the only pieces of it that you can do in the next two weeks are schedule guests and record podcasts. But the success of the podcast depends on a much longer exertion of energy, a much longer exertion of critical reflection, thinking about what you want it to do and say and who it's for. And all of, you know, all of those pieces, none of which are, they don't have any immediacy to them. They're an mm -hmm. ongoing process. Yeah. Going back to when you're working with newer leaders and they're committing to the calendar structure, <laughs> they're like, let's do it. I'm in. Do you see that often trickling down into the rest of the team and changing the culture of the organization a little bit, or is that a bigger? Well, since I, I usually work with, with multiple leaders in an organization. Mm -hmm. So that's a big advantage I have is that I'm not, not working with a single individual who then would have to change everybody. Everybody's getting this input from me about that. Great. And that doesn't mean that the culture shifts, but it does mean you can make incremental changes. So if three or four members of the leadership team start seriously defending their time, which is like a mantra with me, defend your time, and they start blocking portions of their day or saying, I'm not available for meetings on Tuesdays, or, you know, I'm only available for meetings on Tuesdays, whatever it is, bit by bit, the, the leadership team at least will start to coalesce around the workability that makes that possible. So if Andrew is only available for meetings on Tuesday, then John will probably decide to hold some meetings on Tuesday since he has to meet with Andrew. And if they need three other people on the team on, they'll put their meetings on Tuesday. And pretty soon bits of it become contagious, not so much because of any psychology, but literally because of what it takes to coordinate. Yeah. So when you, put, you, you give people constraints, they find ways to work within those constraints. The more constraints, the more narrow the opportunities to have meetings. And since meetings suck up a lot of deep work time, if you can do things like consolidate all the meetings, non-external meetings, like within two days, you can free up the team to have three other days for more significant work. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great it's a great strategy and it is such an advantage to be able to work with a few people on the team because I think mm -hmm. when 
as as an individual person, it's really hard to be the only person who's starting to set those boundaries, especially if you're in a more subordinate role, right? Just to be able to say even to your boss, yeah, I don't take meetings on Tuesdays, right? Like that's a hard conversation to have. But if it starts to become a something from the top or much more cultural or logistical, then that's certainly an advantage for the organization. Well, you know, the other thing is, is that even if somebody's subordinate, I don't recommend that subordinate people, like people in subordinate roles, you know, defy their management or anything like that. But right. I do, since I am working in a coaching capacity, I do help them design conversations to have with the boss about the ways in which they could harness more of their time for deep work or the ways in which they can negotiate the deadlines and delivery dates for certain particles of work. So, you know, if a boss asks somebody to do something by tomorrow, but today has six meetings in it, each of which is going to break every single hour in half, the smart thing to do as a subordinate in that role is to say, listen, I don't think I can deliver that by tomorrow given these circumstances, is the next day okay? So you negotiate or you say, I can only deliver tomorrow if I can get three hours of, you know, of serious focus, you know, focus work. Could I get out of these three meetings? Do you think I'm essential at them? So, you know, part of my belief structure, but it's a premise from which I work, is that every conversation is a negotiation. Sure. You know, and if if you if you go into your relationship with your boss or with your direct report or your leadership team or your investors, understanding that every request is an opening and a negotiation. You can accept it. You can decline it. You can counteroffer. You may not be in a position to out and out decline it, but you can renegotiate the terms. Mm -hmm. You can change the scope. You can move the deadline. And you can do it only if you are rational enough, sort of circumspect enough to have that conversation in a way that recognizes the value of what that item is, whatever that thing is. And it comes from a commitment of wanting to deliver excellent work. You can't do it if you're just, you know, not interested in working. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because I think not only does that point out that there is some, like these conversations are important to have and there's skills that you need to learn in order to have them, but also that it, 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 you have more control over some of these things than a lot of people think. So coming back to the calendar piece, even, I liked when I'm working with my clients, they'll say like, you know, one of their clients like, oh, they needed a meeting right away or, you know, like, oh, they wanted to reschedule to this time. And I just said, yes. And I have to kind of talk with them about, you know, there's, it's good to be flexible. It's, we want to be there for our clients. We want to be supportive. But if you are letting people walk all over your calendar, if you're just agreeing to every reschedule and time that works best for them, then you're doing yourself such a big service and you're doing your business a disservice by allowing other people to, like you said, walk all over your calendar and take advantage of that good time. You know, you know I, th I would suggest that you're also setting a bad precedent for that client. Mm -hmm. Like clients are in a partnership relationship with us. They are not our bosses. Absolutely. And like, I do not take coaching clients during about five hours of the day. And when my clients ask to speak to me at a certain time, if it's in that window, I counter propose. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't say no, but I, I, but I don't talk to people at 11 o'clock in the morning. I just don't because from 1030 to 2 PM is when I get my deep work done and it's not negotiable. Mm 
-hmm. unless a client is, you know, going to Japan tomorrow and they're going to be on the other, you know, they're going to be in Asia for the next month. And it's the only possible way we can do it because that's when they're driving to the, I mean, there, there have been moments. Sure, sure. I can count them on one hand in six years of being in this particular iteration of my business. And so, you know, my clients know that I talk to my clients in the morning and I talk to my clients in the late afternoon and in the middle, no, mm -hmm. it doesn't happen. No clients are booked with me before 3 p.m. or after 10.30 a.m. Yeah, that's great. There's plenty of time for them to talk yeah. to me outside of that time. Yeah. You know? I also like to, I mean, it, it's as tough as it is to hear sometimes, but if that doesn't work, then they're not your ideal client and they're not going to be right. a best fit for you. And, and that's okay too. But compromising your compromising your kind of principles and schedule is not going to do either one of you a service if you take that, that situation on. Well, also, I mean, my work comes from a particular, let's call it a, a body of wisdom. This, this is not my personal wisdom that I made up. This is curated wisdom, sure. right? This is wisdom from, you know, all of the hundreds of people that I've interacted with in my life who coached and trained and mentored me from all of the thousands of books that I've read, courses I've taken, degrees that I have, you know. So this curated body of wisdom has informed me that these principles for work like the principle of securing and defending time for deep knowledge work is absolutely integral to producing excellent outcomes. Mm -hmm. Whether that's excellent outcomes in my work as a coach or a consultant or excellent outcomes in my newsletter, which goes out to people, you know, I send out a long thought piece every two weeks. It has to get researched and written. It can't happen, happen if I'm on call. Absolutely. You know, and that's true for any knowledge worker in any business. Yeah. Oh, so good. So good. I'd love to transition and talk a little more about the strategy piece of your business because I am such a strategy nerd. I love a good plan. I love taking something that's complicated and amorphous and putting putting structure to it. So it's a very broad question, but how does that start for you when you're working with a client? So let me start by saying that I don't think most people know what they're talking about when they use the word strategy. Mm, great place to start. Let's define right? it. <laughs> Let's define terms. So a strategy is a hypothetical theory about how to accomplish a very hard goal. All right. All right. Love so that. it's not necessarily the plan. It starts with identifying what the goal is and identifying what the big problems are that make that goal hard. Because if goals are not hard, you don't need a strategy, right? If the yeah, goal is fair. just an incremental thing that's gonna happen by just continuing to do what you're doing, you don't need a strategy for that. You may need a plan of tasks or a project plan, but that's not a strategy. So the goal has to be hard and it has to be unlikely and there have to be real reasons why it's not predictable. So developing a strategy means first identifying what the reasons are that it's not predictable. What are the hard things? What are the challenges? What are the obstacles? What are the competitors? What are all the things that are likely to make that not happen? And then the other thing you want to identify is what are all the tools that you have at your disposal right now? Do so you kind of start with an inventory of reality as it stands? Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to run a marathon, if I want to run a marathon next month, that is a highly unpredictable outcome given that I've had three spine surgeries and I no longer run. I used to be competitive. 
So if I wanted to do it, there would be a lot of things arguing against it. And I would need to have a very clear theory about how I could overcome two years of not running on the street to accomplish that. Or if you want your business to have 25 in staff and 100,000 downloads a week for your podcast by 2023, which I assume is probably an unpredictable outcome at this moment, mm -hmm. right? Then you need to identify all of the things that make that unpredictable. Like short of you doing a viral TikTok and like, I mean, it could happen, right? But sure. that's hard to make happen. So the strategy is that hypothesis, that theory we come up with where we say, all right, what, what, what is the scenario inside of which Chelsea's podcast could have 100,000 downloads a week? What, what kind of podcast would it need to be for that to happen, right? Mm -hmm. What channels would it have to be available on? What target audience would it need? What length would it, like we would have to figure out how does that happen? And if we came up with a theory about that, then we could craft a plan to test, to actually put that theory into practice and test it. So that when I talk about strategy, that's what I'm talking about. I love that. It just blew my mind. That's so good. Now you have me wanting to make, <laughs> make a strategy to get my podcast too. <laughs> sure. Because I mean, because that's what strategy is for. That's why it's exciting. Mm -hmm. Strategy is how do you take that hill that the enemy has 10,000 troops on, you know? It's not how do you take that hill that's over there on that desert island. Yeah. And so where do people tend to get hung up on this process then? Is it not recognizing what the challenges could be? Well, first of all, people think they have a strategy if they're doing anything. So, you know, so <laughs> if your sales are going up by one client every six months and your goal is to have it go up by two clients every six months, which is a hundred percent increase. People tend to think that if they just do more of what they're doing, that will happen. So I think that's the first thing is that people don't identify the need for a strategy mm -hmm. because we have a lot of optimism bias. And we tend to believe that, you know, I, it's funny, I, I have an article that I wrote about this a while back. You know, I have, I have clients who have been not, not recent clients, but historically I've had clients who are small businesses who have been earning about the same for the last 10 years. And every year they project that this year they're going to do 150% of what they did last year. And they never do, right? I mean, if you talk to their CPA, pretty much every year they earn maybe, you know, an extra $10,000 a year, which is not a huge increase for a small business. So, but they think that this year is going to be better, but there's no evidence that this year is going to be better. So I think the first thing that that both individual, you know, solopreneur, solopreneurs and startup organizations, actually most organizations need to identify is that if you have a goal and the goal is not genuinely predictable, you need to get real about what's predictable and what's not. I think that's the first thing is you really need to sort of dig into the data and face reality about whatever reality is. You know, if you have been the same weight and it's 30 pounds overweight for the last five years, then the odds are that changing salad dressing is not going to significantly change that trajectory, right? It's yeah. going to take something significant. And so that's the first thing is that this is startups, people, everybody fail to acknowledge sort of reality, what's really predictable and what would it take to disrupt that? And then the second thing that I think is really hard is when you do finally start crafting that scenario and you decide what the scenario is that you're going to build a plan and a theory to go for, they don't like saying no to anything. This is the, this is the same problem that you have in productivity, you have in strategy. 
-hmm. which is that it's the same reason that people don't fire those, excuse my language, asshole clients who insist yeah. on booking a meeting in five minutes just because they want to talk to you then. Why not fire that client and free up that time to get a client who's a good client? And the reason is of, because of fear, because yeah. they're afraid to let go of that piece of revenue because they might never get it again. But that individual who is providing that revenue is taking more than they're giving. So in strategy, you have to make choices. It's not that hard to choose what to do. It's very hard to choose what not to do. Very and, it's, point, yeah. and a strategy is a commitment to a particular focus, a particular plan. If your target market is dry cleaners and you happen to meet somebody who runs a hairdressing salon and they want you and they think they can get you into every hairdressing salon, that is a strategic decision. Are you now going to shift your strategy when you put all of your resources, time, research, money, advertising, everything into dry cleaners? There's not a right or a wrong answer, but the strategy means you actually do make that commitment to dry cleaners. Yeah, that's good stuff because now you got me thinking that what I what I often do with clients is I like to work with solopreneurs and people who are in small businesses. And now I'm thinking that I'm guilty of this myself is skipping right to the plan part and having that belief that you mentioned of, well, this year is going to be different. But if I think that it's one thing to be able to say, okay, I'm going to post every day. But if there's not that strategy behind it, if there's not identifying the challenges that could happen or that ultimate goal. What's, what's the rationale behind exactly. posting? Like, yeah. what are you posting? Who is it intended for? And what does it look like for it to work? Mm -hmm. Like if you say posting every day, okay, what's the purpose of, like, I'll give you an example. I've just started attempting to market through LinkedIn. I have never marketed through LinkedIn. <laughs> this is because I signed on with this marketing guru and I'm, I'm trying to put my own ego aside and learn from him because I am not a marketing expert, far from it. So he says LinkedIn is the answer. And one of the things he told me to do is because I have a, you know, I have a big subscriber base to my newsletter and I have six years of content. Yeah. He said, repost it as articles on LinkedIn every day. Seems stupid to me. Why don't I just send them and to get, but so, but I'm doing it. You know how many people have subscribed in the, I think I've been doing it one month on LinkedIn. I have 900 subscribers on LinkedIn. Wow. That's incredible. LinkedIn. I have no yeah. idea who they are though. Now, the other thing is though, that would not, that in and of itself doesn't matter because subscribers on LinkedIn, who cares? But I, I do know what it looks like for that to work. For that to work, I need to actually have prospective leads come from LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to do this another month. But if I don't get a single lead at a certain point, I'm going to make a decision because I'm not doing it in order to add more work to my day by re-editing my old articles and posting them to LinkedIn. I'm doing it to generate leads. Right. So if you're going to post every day, which I think is a fine tactic, you need to figure out what you want to happen as a result of that. Like, are those posts meant to lead people to your podcast to become subscribers? Then every single post needs a call to action and you need a way to measure how many of your new subscribers come from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Oh, so good. I'm going to be making some better strategies for my business after this. <laughs> good. Listen, I would be delighted if, if anybody listening, you or anyone else got value out of this and made one change that would, you know, give them greater clarity or amplify 
the work that they're doing in such a way that they get better results. Cause that's really why I do what I do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, on this podcast, I love to talk to people about their own time management and productivity philosophies. So you mentioned a little bit about your schedule already, but could you walk us through the average day or average week? Day? Sure. So I wake up quite early. I'm one of those people who I don't like the idea of waking up really early because I'd like to stay up late, but I love being up really early. So I wake <laughs> up at about five and I come straight to my office. And that's the time of day when I check LinkedIn. I look at my email. I print out the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> I check all of the links, the PR requests that have come in, that kind of stuff. I do that for about an hour. And then I do abs and PT on the floor just for like 20 minutes so that it's, so that piece of the workout of the day is done. And it also means that when I walk the dog, I feel like I've been physical a little bit before that. <laughs> so I do about an hour, an hour and a half of work of some variety in the morning, a little bit of exercise, and then I walk the dog. And then by then it's usually like 6.30, 6.40 maybe. I spend the next usually until somewhere around eight with newspaper, dealing with the LinkedIn article that I post every day, responding to PR things, like actually responding, not just curating. I do the crossword puzzle. I do two or three crossword puzzles every morning. And then I usually have client calls at eight and nine. Okay. So that's when the formal part, and you know, I have to prep for those. So by, by about nine, I've already really done about four yeah. hours. Then yeah. I work out, then I go to the gym or I go swim, mm -hmm. right? I'm back at the house by 1030 and from 1030 to about 130 is when I mostly write. That's when I actually get writing done. And then I break for lunch and then I usually try to do more writing or whatever kind of administrative stuff there is for me to do until about three. And then I have client calls usually from three to six or seven, depending on the day, not all of that time, but I usually have 20 or 30 minutes between calls. Mm -hmm. So that that's the time dedicated for client calls. Most of them happen in the afternoon, but I typically have at least one every morning by eight. So that's a typical day, you know, it varies, but roughly and then if I'm doing strategy consult, I'm, I usually am going to my clients and then I'm traveling and I'm with the clients all day for usually three days at a time. Okay. Yeah. So everything else goes on hold. Oh, sounds like a great schedule. I love, I love the idea of having a slow morning and. Well, it's a fast, slow, fast morning. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And, and have you been, so something you've been going back in person with clients more and more? Yeah. Well, not to be honest, the Bell's palsy has kind of put the kibosh on some things mm. temporarily because actually I was supposed to be in New York next week. And, but I'm not traveling at the moment because as you can see, I can't stop touching my eye and I'm really a little freaked out about the amount of germs that I'd be potentially putting in my eye. Fair enough. I get yeah. on airplanes and if I were to go to New York. So I'm kind of pushing out in-person stuff until this resolves because I have enough things going on with half my face paralyzed without adding an infection. So I'm not worried about getting COVID, but I am worried about getting a disease in my eye. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good call. Safe call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then again, I, I do like that schedule. I, I like starting my day with email, getting that kind of stuff kind of set and then out of the way. They don't really have to think about it right. as much for the rest of the day. And similarly, I'm not really great at hitting the ground running, literally. I, I've tried for years and failed for years to like be someone who runs at five o'clock in the morning. I can get up at five o'clock in the morning, but I need that 
that runway. Yeah, I don't, I don't, um, I do go to the gym like first thing when I'm traveling. And when, when I was mm -hmm. running Ringo, I was, you know, I actually did. Well, actually, I couldn't then. I had a different schedule then because the home office was in the UK. But there was a time when I was running the commercial part of a company in Westchester, New York, and I live in Florida. So when I was up there, we had office hours started at eight. I was in the gym by 4.30 in the morning. I don't love doing that or I yeah. was out running. I don't, I don't love that. I, I would much rather, I do wake up very alert. So I like, I'm at like at the computer with my toothbrush in hand. Like I'm serious. Like I go to the bathroom, I pee and I'm at the computer with a toothbrush because I wake up thinking, yeah. but I, I prefer not to work out until I've had a cup of tea and I've done the crossword puzzle and I've done the email and like something's done for the day. Yeah. And then I feel like I'm, I don't feel guilty having that time to, you know, just indulge my, my compulsions, which is really what working out is. But I do live by what I preach, you know, this is all in my calendar. I mean, you know, I actually designate that time to work out. And then I designate that busy time to be writing or whatever the particular project is that I'm working on. And of course, all the clients are booked. And I'm also and I'll tell you something like with Calendly and those calendar apps, I am very defensive about the time I give them. Mm -hmm. I only give them very small amounts of my day. And I notice a lot of people just put their whole calendar on there and see, I am firmly against that. If you go on my calendar, it's not Calendly, but it's similar. If you go on that link, you will only find opportunities to talk to me between 8 and 10 a.m. or between 5 and or 3 and 5 p.m. and no others. Yeah, I recently realized... I don't remember exactly when it happened, but Calendly lets you have multiple calendar right. choices. And I had the wrong one available. And it was right when I started doing guest podcasts. And so all of a sudden my calendar was just littered and I fixed it. But that was brutal for a week or two. I try to set those set those times because for me, I don't want my days to be broken up. I like condensing my meetings too, mm -hmm. but I don't like having my day being broken up with like, random little 20, 30 minute chunks all over the place that drive me nuts. It's um, terrible for your yeah. productivity. It's terrible. And just think about all the companies in the world that are doing that though, mm -hmm. where everybody's just putting these meetings all over each other's calendars. Like I had a client, he actually left the company, so he's no longer my client, but he was the CTO of a high growth startup, one that had already raised about $150 million. And this poor guy literally had meetings like all day, every day, and even on Saturdays, the guy is by nature an introvert and he's an engineer. And his whole day is just completely cannibalized by these meetings, most of which he's not essential for. But the culture of the company was totally intolerant of leaving anyone out of any meeting and of any kind of defense of time. He did eventually learn how to defend blocks of time for work. But we worked together for years. It probably took him the first two years to actually work up the courage to, to have his calendar be blocked. Like, wow. no, you can't put anything there. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. I'm happy to see that at least from the peripheral and from conversations with my friends, it does feel like some companies are kind of jumping on the bandwagon of having, you know, no meeting Mondays or I know my mom recently started working for a company where the max you can have a meeting is 45 minutes. And so they, and they're really, they hold it to that. So at least people get like a breather to go, you know, go get a snack, go to the bathroom, like stand up from their computer or just go get a breath of fresh air if they're in the mm -hmm. office before just being in meetings all day. So I'm, I'm happy to see that some of that is happening slowly, but surely. 
Well, I think, uh, you know, I think part of the reason that there's, there's a lot of tension about this, about the sort of how many meetings, how many is too much, should we have no meeting days and all that. A lot of that tension is driven by distributed teams, by not everybody being in the office together. And it also means, though, that because everybody is remote, that there is less, I think, respect for other people's time, because you can't actually see them over there with the door closed and their head down. Yeah. You know, that's a really it's good easy point. to assume that everybody is sort of, and I tell people like, put yourself on unavailable on Slack, turn off every single alert you have, except your calendar. And if you have a child, your text messaging, right? Like nothing else should have an alert because every single alert breaks your focus. You always and, say no alerts. Yeah. And I mean, but I've been on podcasts where the, the host alerts go off. Like, seriously? Like, you didn't turn your phone off before recording? People are very beholden to their technological mask. Yeah. yeah. This has been awesome. I feel like we could, maybe we'll have to do a part two because I learned so <laughs> much and I feel like there's an incredible amount of value here, but I do want to respect your time and your calendar. So I'm going to hit you with a couple of rapid fire questions right at the end and okay. then I'll have you share where everybody can find you and obviously I'll, I'll be in the show notes as well all right well you already kind of answered the first one but are you a morning person or a night person I actually think I'm a night person okay but I've, I've caused myself to be a morning person <laughs> yep yep that happens pen and paper or all digital both I right. take notes on pen and paper but session notes digitally so I can have them archived and and meta tagged yeah, I think hybrid's the way to go. And what's your favorite way to relax? Working out, probably. Ideally, swimming. But right now, my shoulder is on the kibosh. But yeah, swimming. It's a great workout. The pool here is outdoors, which really freaked me out the first time. I, Where do you live? I live in Cuba, in Guantanamo Bay. Oh, that's place. right. You're in Gitmo. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Perfect swimming weather. I'm in Tampa. It is. It is. But I grew up swimming in an indoor pool. And so the first time I had a I was outside. I don't know. It was just weird. That's <laughs> so funny because I hate swimming inside. And I oh, really? wear like nowadays I cover everything to swim because I'm so paranoid about skin cancer. But um, when I travel, I have to swim inside and mm -hmm. I don't like it at all. I, I feel like I don't breathe as well and the pool's not as clean. And I don't know. <laughs> I need to get back to it. So maybe I'll, once I'm you know, doing it more regularly, I'll get more comfortable. But Wear lots okay. of sunscreen. Yes, that's very true. Very, very true. Uh, where is the best place for people to find you? I know you have a ton of amazing resources as well. Yeah, well, probably the easiest thing is just go to my website. It's beyondbetter.io. And you can subscribe to the blog there. You can set a meeting with me. You can email me and you can see other things. I mean, there's plenty there and it'll lead you to Twitter and LinkedIn and whatever else. They're all out there. And the book, of course, is also available there. Perfect. Perfect. Well, like I said, I'll be, I'll be in the show notes, but I'm so grateful for your time. This was an awesome conversation and a ton of value for myself personally. I said, I'm inspired. I'm ready to. Go well, on. I'm going to expect a report back on what you actually <laughs> that, I, I always like to hear, did people actually put things into action? So I'd love to hear that, but I'm also very grateful for the invitation. It was a great conversation, Chelsea. Well, thank you and have a great day. You too. Thank you for enjoying another episode of From Overwhelmed to Under Control. I hope you're feeling one step closer to your goals. Don't forget to check out the show notes and follow along on Instagram at Chelsea and Coaching. I look forward to talking to you soon.